amount of things, or even if I am seeking to better understand or inquire about something within my direct experience or expertise, to whom do I turn? What has become increasingly clear in our current political climate is that truth is not always a priority. This story from 2011 feels almost nostalgic, but it set the tone for what was to come, and because it happened where I was living at the time, Arizona, it struck home literally. Arizona Senator John Kyle proclaimed from the Senate floor that abortions made up over 90% of Planned Parenthood's activities. Kyle's office in an unprecedented act of candor, replied to questions about the veracity of his claim by clarifying that what Senator Kyle said, quote, was not intended to be a factual statement. (laughs) Unquote. That is a direct quote. He made a statement using a percentage even, which tends to suggest that it is grounded in verifiable evidence and proclaims it from the Senate floor and it is entered into the congressional record and explains afterward that though it was put forth as a piece of information that would support his argument, it was, quote, not intended to be a factual statement. Unquote. Not only was it not true, as in, whoops, I was given the wrong information, it was not intended to be true. It was intended to be shocking, inflammatory, enraging, whatever, but it was known beforehand to be provably false. That kind of story has, alas, become ho-hum. We have passed through the era of truthiness, comedian Stephen Colbert's term for the quality of seeming or being felt to be true, even if not necessarily true. To the current administration's stamp of approval bestowed on a new and undefined concept in the arena of truth-seeking called alternate facts. Barefaced dismissals, like John Kyle's, of verifiable truth are a daily occurrence. Media runs fact checks on political speeches, and we are more surprised when the actual truth happens to align with a politician's agendas than when they lie, excuse me, when they make non-factual statements. And what, you are asking, does this have to do with evolution or with Charles Darwin, whose birthday we celebrate today? Hang with me here. I promise we're coming back to Darwin. One of the ways in which we decide who to trust to tell us the truth is by assessing their intentions. Do we imagine their primary intention is to discover and share the truth? Some, as we have noted, come right out and say that telling the truth is not their intention, primary or otherwise. To paraphrase the wise advice of Maya Angelou, when people tell you who they are, believe them. When people come out and show you their intentions, believe them. 
But intentions are not always so bluntly revealed. Sometimes they are disclosed in a roundabout way or implied by an act of diversion or suggested by a puzzling preamble like, I'm not a scientist, but have you heard that? I'm not a scientist, but it is rarely followed by anything like, I'm not a scientist, but I trust the scientific method and the overwhelming majority of scientists who agree on the causes and the foreseeable effects of climate change. Right? That's not usually how the statement goes. Rather, it is a setup for another kind of statement that, in the words of John Kyle, is not intended to be factual. Apparently, I didn't know this, but President Ronald Reagan kicked off this delightful trend in 1980 with his speculative comparison of volcanoes and car emissions. I'm not a scientist, he said, but I just have a suspicion that that one little mountain out there has probably released more sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere of the world than has been released in the last 10 years of automobile driving. That was not true, of course, but I feel it's safe to say that it was not intended to be a factual statement. So why do people say this? Why does anyone trust what they say? No one would trust me, I hope, if I said, I'm not a plumber, but I'd just flush an explosive down there and see what happens. I'm not a car mechanic, but I just tape something over that emergency service light so it doesn't bother you when you're driving. <laughs> you see what I mean? But you have to understand that the people who say this, I'm not a scientist, but they're not only banking on their own credibility, which may be questionable even to their supporters, they are banking on a distrust of science, and by extension, higher education among a segment of the population. My father sometimes referred to those murkily defined learned elite as, quote, educated fools, unquote. They held a lot of knowledge, he said, but no wisdom. They questioned everything and thus believed nothing. They relied on their own reason rather than on God's truth. And the fear was that after a certain practical point, education simply led to questioning the values and religious beliefs that were so central to their lives. It not only led to that, it was intended for that very purpose. In the eyes of the parents, the angry parents in St. Clair, Missouri, that Wendy, Wendy mentioned, in the eyes of my parents and many extended family members and many of the people I know and love in Minnesota and Iowa where I grew up. So, because they were suspicious of the intentions, it was hard for them to accept any truths that may be offered from those sources. Danielle Pletka from the conservative think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. 
was asked in November 2018 on Meet the Press to comment on the U.S. climate assessment, which sounded an alarm about the effects that climate change is having and will continue to have on the environment and the economy. She said, I'm not a scientist. I look at this as a citizen. I see it, so I understand it. On the other hand, see, she cleverly delayed the but. <laughs> On the other hand, we need to also recognize we just had two of the coldest years, biggest drop in global temperatures that we have had since the 1980s, the biggest in the last hundred years. We don't talk about that because it's not part of the agenda. Notice, she refers to an agenda that is questioning the intentions of the climate assessment beyond reporting the facts about climate change. An agenda. What could that agenda be, I wonder? When she was challenged after the show, she said, had I said that God is dead, there would have been less of an outcry. Note, I commented that I have little doubt climate change is real, but this is an area in which scholarship and science play no role. It is a religion. See what she did there? First, she used a phrase that has not been in vogue for a long time. God is dead. But it has a certain frightening resonance among the intended audience. And then she goes on to suggest that her critics are not so much offering facts as promoting their own religion, a competing religion to the religion of her intended audience. They are distorting her response. After all, she said she accepted climate change. They're distorting it because of their agenda, because of their religion. Because if you can convince people of harmful intention, you can effectively block the transmission of the message, no matter how factual or true. And there are people who will purposely use this technique to manipulate. That is the truth. And though I have a tendency to point my fingers at others and cry out, why can't you accept the truth? I have to at least pause and wonder how often I fall victim to the same syndrome. Now, it's true. I have to consider the source when I am assessing what I come to believe is true. What are the intentions of the speaker? Who funded the study? What are the conclusions they wish me to draw? Does there seem to be a commitment to following the truth wherever it leads? Or are they beginning with conclusions that they then seek to support with selected data? But if I am to be honest with myself, if I am to be a reliable source of truth for myself, I have to admit that it is very easy for me to cross from selecting reliable sources whom I trust to tell me the truth to deeming sources reliable because they affirm what I have already decided is true. I have deemed this source to have integrity so I will trust what it communicates to be true or to be as true as they can be, as opposed to this source is communicating things I already believe to be true or that are consistent with what I believe to be true. Thus, they are reliable sources of truth. 
That's a bit of circular logic that it's easy to fall into. The question I began with seems like it should have a fairly simple answer. Who do we trust to tell us the truth? But it can start to feel very messy and muddy and murky in a post-truth environment that recognizes opposing sides to every question but offers precious few insights, answers, or revelations. Ideally, we trust those people who prove trustworthy, who seem intent on discovering truth for themselves, who become skilled and knowledgeable and trained in specific areas to be able to explore and answer questions that we may have. Those who show integrity of purpose and a lack of other corrupting, overriding concerns that may pervert their communication of what is true. I told you we'd get back to Darwin. I'm no scientist, but I love Charles Darwin. (laughs) I've never read an entire book by him, but everything I read seems to impart a genuine, irrepressible passion for truth. I can remember the very spot in the road, he writes, whilst in my carriage, when to my joy the solution occurred to me. The solution, as I believe, is that the modified offspring of all dominant and increasing forms tend to become adapted to many and highly diversified places in the economy of nature. But listen to the excitement bursting through this short passage. I can remember the very spot in the road when, to my joy, the solution occurred to me. Ignorance may sometimes be bliss, but it cannot compare to the joy of discovery, to the joy of understanding something that has puzzled us. And it's not like he was ignorant of some of the more difficult ramifications of what he was presenting. In The Descent of Man, he wrote, I am aware that the conclusions arrived at in this work will be denounced by some as highly irreligious. But we are not concerned here with hopes or fears, only with the truth as far as our reason allows us to discover it. I have given the evidence to the best of my ability. I believe him. I find that completely credible. I trust him to communicate what is true to the best of his ability, not that everything he wrote or concluded is correct, but it was true and honest to the best of his abilities to seek, discover, and communicate it. And he welcomed those who would come after and revise, correct, explore, improve. It reminds me of the beauty and power of the fifth source of our Unitarian Universalist tradition. The living tradition which we share draws from humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warns us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. And I remember my anthropology class at Pima Community College when I was for the first time at age 36 ushered into a clear description of the theory of evolution by natural selection that Darwin put forth. I may have heard bits and pieces before, but this time I was paying attention. (laughs) 
The story of adaptation, almost infinitely small changes building one upon another over time to create the amazing diversity of life. The recognition that we humans were inextricably linked to all of life and that we were, in the words of the professor, a very recent evolutionary experiment and the results were not in yet. The mind-blowing awareness that all of life did indeed arise from a single source, not in some theologically abstract terms, but in the carefully gathered evidence of the scientific method. The looking over the edge of the cliff realization that all of this was decidedly not all about us, as I had been led to believe. And the slow building awe that came when I stopped looking over the edge of the cliff and instead looked out at the view, the humility and gratitude that came with knowing, no, it is not all about us. It is way too big and too awesome and too intricate and too complex and too simple all at once to just be about us. But what an honor, what a miracle to be included, to be part of this interdependent web of all life, stretching from the distant past beyond that which we can trace to the distant, unfathomable future. All of this built up in me to something that felt like love. Love for what is mortal. Love for distant ancestors leaving footprints in volcanic ash. Love for all creatures who lived and died in one almost infinitesimally small point on the evolutionary timeline that graced the classroom wall. Love for myself and all humans who strove to try and understand all of this. And love for that person who first brought us this glimpse into life itself. Who had followed the evidence. Who had taken the time to observe and not assume. Who had listened to life speaking and transcribed the conversation for future generations. Love for Charles Darwin. I'm not a scientist, but I love Charles Darwin for opening up for me the beauty of discovering the truth as far as our reason allows us to discover it. When we move beyond our hopes and desires and fears and insecurities and risk embracing faith in reality, whatever we discover about this reality, we are privileged to inhabit together. I'm no scientist, but that is a gift for which I will be forever grateful. Happy birthday, Charles Darwin.